Welcome to the 269th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with David Ignatius, best-selling author and prize-winning columnist for the Washington Post. David's new novel is The Paladin. Stay tuned for the interview. This episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast is brought to you by Libro.fm. Libro.fm is the first and only company which lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Support your favorite local bookstore and you can pick from more than 125,000 audiobooks including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who I'm talking about, but you'll be part of a different story one that supports your local bookstore. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out the recommendations and curated list from the people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. There's a special offer now for reading and writing podcast listeners. Get three audiobooks for the price of one, $14.99, with your first month of membership, just use the code RWPODCAST. Again, that's Libro.fm, purchasing audiobooks from your local bookstore, and use the code RWPODCAST. Well, welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is David Ignatius. David is a columnist for the Washington Post and has been covering the Middle East and the CIA for nearly four decades. He has written several New York Times bestselling novels. His latest novel, The Paladin, has just been published. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jeff. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about your new novel, The Paladin, yet, how would you describe the novel? This novel is about a CIA officer named Michael Dunn who is asked to do something that he suspects may be illegal, but does it anyway, gets hung out to dry by the agency, is indicted, convicted, sent to prison. The book opens with his uh, trial in which the judge sentences him to a year in prison for violating CI regulations. he has been assigned to penetrate an organization in Europe that is uh, presenting itself as a journalistic organization run by an American. But as Michael Dunn discovers as he's on this operation, is creating not just fake news, but really creating fake events, creating what are known as deep fakes, uh, manipulated sound, image, uh, that are being circulated uh, in part uh, to benefit people who are trying to profit from this imagery. So the book is in part the story of how he is destroyed in this mission and then his effort to figure out who set him up and to take down the people who did that both in the agency and uh, in the network that they're operating with. And do you remember the original idea that led you to write The Paladin? Well, I I remember, like all of us, uh, thinking about the ways in which disinformation, uh, meddling in our elections, 
the, the sense that we were vulnerable to manipulation of information uh, was just an overwhelming fact of life in the time I was beginning work on the book. That's that's the first part of it. The second part is thinking about the character of Michael Dunn. Uh, I don't know if you or your listeners uh, remember a book called Hillbilly Elegy by yes. Jade Vance. And I was fascinated by that character and people from the Rust Belt. Uh, my hero, Michael Dunn, is from in the Keysport, Pennsylvania, which is a steel town uh, just up the Monongahela River from, from Pittsburgh, which is a classic Rust Belt town that was destroyed by the departure of, of manufacturing when the steel industry collapsed. There's just nothing left of the Keysport. Houses are basically all boarded up. And that's where he's from. And so he comes into the story with a sense of anger, chip on his shoulder that a lot of people from those towns do. Um, the, the book um, describes him as the opening of the book, a Donald Trump voter, you know, like a lot of people from the Rust Belt. He was uh, saw in this Trump the theme, something that resonated with him. By the end of the book, uh, I don't think he would be likely to be a Trump uh, voter, but people can read it and, dis- and decide. But So there, there, there are those two things, thematically, thinking about this terrible problem we all have of knowing what's what's true and what isn't. And then second, thinking of a, of a hero who would be a little bit different, who would allow me to think about people from that part of the country, what motivates them, uh, what motivates their anger. Uh, and that, so that's how it got started. And and so I'm just curious, I mean, given your research for the book, and, and obviously I'm sure you researched uh, deep fakes, um, I mean, is I'm just curious. Like, do you see a, a way beyond this? I mean, I'm, I'm we're recording this, and just this past weekend there was a um, video uh, about the um, pandemic statistics that went viral, and then all of the um, major social media channels um, ended up deleting it because uh, I guess it could be argued that it was disinfo or or fake news. Where do we go I, from where do we go from here? <laughs> I I think the problem that that my hero is is dealing with how do we know fact from fiction is is one that really does now surround us. There are a lot of smart people who are who are trying to think how do we detect uh, false imagery? Deep deep fake technology is very sophisticated using what are called generative adversarial networks where you basically run two computers against each other, one the fake and then the other detect the fake. You produce um, over, over uh, time uh, uh, imagery that just is almost seamless because you've corrected every obvious flaw, every little shadow that's wrong, every uh, you know not quite synced lip with words has been has been corrected out in this uh, adversarial network process. So, uh, DARPA, our advanced uh, research agency at the Pentagon, has had for the last three years uh, a project it's funding called Media Forensics. I just was looking that up the other day. And they've been spending a lot of money to, to figure out what technology would allow 
government, our intelligence agencies, to to figure out if imagery that was coming at them, let's say an intercepted voice that they thought was real, or an intercepted photographic image that they thought was real, what would allow them to 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 figure out whether it was it was fake? And they've gone pretty far in that. I've talked a lot with people uh, at uh, Facebook and Google about their efforts to find ways to identify imagery that's that's fake. Not that they'd necessarily take it down. I mean, people uh, buy forged art paintings. Some people like to collect forgeries. But you want to you want to establish the provenance, you know, where where imagery comes from, uh, the chain that uh, leads to the image, the painting, in the case of, of the art world, being in front of you. So I, ideas like that, d- digital forensics, examining the imagery, the digital provenance, knowing uh, where information comes from so you can flag uh, information that's questionable. Uh, basic fact-checking. With the Washington Post, we have one of our most successful features now is called the fact-checker. And when somebody makes a statement, the fact checker will go to all sorts sorts of different sources and then award you know three Pinocchios if it's you know uh, pretty much a lie, four Pinocchios if it's a flat out uh, you know whopper, and so I, I think that's part of the future of my business. We're we're in the fact checking, establishing provenance, making sure purported facts are real facts business. That's what we're going to do now. So during the during the Cold War, there were procedures in place, or at least people thought that there were procedures in place uh, for um, governments to contact each other in in times of crisis. For example, I'm thinking of the Cuban Missile Crisis and and, and other international events. Do do you think that some of those um, procedures are still in place? I, I I guess just against this backdrop, I'm thinking about if there's uh, uh, deep fake videos that could could you know result in in a in a military um, uh, response, and I'm just wondering is there is there ways for for governments to to contact and 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 question each other as to what they're seeing is accurate? Yes, after the Cuban Missile Crisis, the so-called hotline was created. In the Cuban Missile Crisis, we were really lucky that back channel contacts. Uh, really, some private meetings with the Russian ambassador in Washington, the Soviet ambassador at that time, were the way that Kennedy passed his, his messages. So the hotline was created, and that was basically a telex link to allow instant communication in times of, of crisis. Interestingly, when President Obama wanted to warn Russian President Vladimir Putin that he was serious about not meddling in the 2016 presidential election, he sent that message on the hotline. Uh, I wrote that in one of my columns. It was a way of trying to signal, this is really serious. We're sending this on the channel we reserve for potential nuclear accidents for that that kind of strategic crisis. So those uh, hotlines exist. The problem here, obviously, is that uh, if people are setting out to deceive you in the imagery they create, why wouldn't they deceive you uh, in their response to your questions, asking whether it was uh, real or, or, or fake? Right. Uh, it's one reason people have always been a little bit wary about about some of these uh, hotline uh, 
prospects. If somebody wanted to lure you into a war, they'd have every every reason to keep lying, not not to correct the lie. Right. Right. Well, well, last week, and I'm not sure if you're if you if you're um, familiar with this, but last week there were several news articles about retired Army General Stanley McChrystal, the former head of U.S. forces in Afghanistan, working with technology in the United States that was originally developed to counter Islamic State propaganda, um, to specifically counter some of the digital efforts to, to re-elect President Trump. Are, are you familiar with that? And, and what are you familiar specifically with that, but I'm, I'm familiar in general with, 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 with the problem. The, um, I think there's a, a growing awareness of, of this and, uh, you know, public, spirited citizens like General McChrystal want to help protect democracy. I think there's increasingly an understanding of how vulnerable our uh, election systems, but you know, the, really the information stream that underlies our ability as citizens to make good decisions, that, that those are vulnerable and that they need help, they need protection. So um, I, I, I know that uh, prominent People uh, like McChrystal have been talking with uh, big social media platforms to think: what are the what are the rules? How do we help users and citizens get reliable information? And you you've seen increasingly the willingness by Facebook to take false information down. We remember that during the 2016 election, one reason that the Russians were successful in their manipulation efforts is that. Facebook basically let them buy ads, let them post content, fake accounts purporting to be some guy from Texas, you know, with a shotgun on his uh, his Facebook uh, uh, homepage. It was, it was, those accounts increasingly are now, uh, if they're questioned and can be shown to be false, taken down immediately. And I, so I think that just illustrates uh, there's a lot of sensitivity to this, to this problem of manipulation, a willingness to help out. Um, I'm just concerned that, as in so many areas, technology, the te- technology of manipulation moves faster than the defense uh, against manipulation. Uh, and that, uh, you know, there's just a lot of creative work being put into to, to hoodwinking us. Sure. Well, in the 1980s, you were covering the CIA for the Washington Post when you wrote your first novel, Agents of Innocence. What led you to writing your first novel? Had you always wanted to write fiction? No, quite the opposite. In college, I'd taken a fiction writing course, and I basically bombed out. (laughs) Um, So I I wanted to be a journalist. Um, The the world of fact uh, fascinated me. I was assigned by the Wall Street Journal to cover the Middle East. And in the course of that assignment, I came across a story that's still the most interesting story I ever uh, published, which was that PLO chief Yasser Arafat's chief of intelligence had been an American asset for nearly 10 years. Uh, had been recruited in 1970 and then continued until his death. He was assassinated by Israel in 1979. Israel, uh, understanding that from their 
standpoint, he was a terrorist, flat-out terrorist. So I, I wrote that story. It took, took me two years to do the research for it. It was published in February 1983. And in April 1983, I was in the American Embassy in Beirut, left at about 12.30, went back went to, at 1.07, just over a half hour after I'd left the embassy. The biggest bomb I'd ever heard in Beirut went off. And the embassy was destroyed. People may remember that, that image, but that was April 1983. And in that bombing, the CIA officer who run this operation, uh, recruiting Arafat's chief of intelligence, had been killed along with every member of the CIA station who was in Beirut that day. So uh, in the aftermath of that, people just poured their hearts out. They were so grief-stricken. Uh, I was a journalist. I'd been asking questions about this for a couple of years. They, they began to tell me things that were so interesting. Uh, I, I just, you know, I... I I knew I had to find some way to use them. I'd already written a, a piece of journalism about it. And I decided that I, I needed to teach myself how to write a novel. I wrote a first draft, was turned down by a dozen publishers. Nobody was interested. Finally, W.W. W. Norton, which is still my publisher, said, okay, we'll buy it. But what we really want is the book of nonfiction. If you'll agree to write a book of nonfiction after the fiction, we'll take this novel. Anyway, that gave me the confidence to rewrite it and rewrite it, and it became a, a hit, still in print, still um, uh, has, a, has a wide following. It's called Agents of Innocence. Uh, uh, and it told the true story that I just, I just narrated in, in the fiction. So that got me hooked. I just found with that book, uh, here's a way to take what I know uh, from the world of fact and take it the next step and make it more powerful and say more of what I, I know and, and sense about the, the characters and events than I could. You know, you can't write a hundred thousand word news story. So that's kind of how I got started. And, and uh, this is now my 11th novel. Uh, and each time I, I get into an area that interests me, like deep fakes with the Paladin, uh, I've been reporting about it as a, as a columnist. And I thought, okay, this, this is the material for a, a story that will be interesting for readers over uh, 350 pages. And so what is your writing process when you're working on a novel such as The Paladin? Do you plot and outline your novel extensively before you write it? I do. I start with an outline. I do a lot of research. Um, I, I will think of the, of the plot points in a, in a book like this. Spy novels are meant to entertain. They're, they're, they need to have surprises. They need to do a couple backflips in the last 30 pages that the reader doesn't expect. So I try to think through the plot details. But then, obviously, once you start writing, something very different happens. The characters take over. The story begins to write itself. Um, I try to do a lot of reporting, not just on the the subject, like deep fakes and reading in the literature, but actually go to the places where my character is going to be, uh, eyeball them. Um, just, just, I don't, I don't like um, uh, spy novels, kind of classic James Bond novel. It's too fanciful. It's just too made up. I, you know, I, I this whole idea that spies go around dressed in tuxedos, drinking martinis. <laughs> and, I mean, it's just like goofy. It's that isn't isn't remotely like the real world. So I try to keep my books as close to what I think 
the real world of, of intelligence espionage is, is all about. And what advice would you offer for listeners who, who are writing their own stories or novels? Well, the usual uh, advice given, certainly was given, has been given to me, is, is write what you know. Um, uh, I, I think you need to begin with that terrain of, of fact and verisimilitude. It just it, it will feel real to the reader because you, you know it's real. But I'm going to give a piece of advice that may surprise your, your listeners. I think the most important thing once you have that idea, uh, have the kind of, uh, factual basis, which is your, your starting point, is, is to let go. And by that I mean um, let go your conscious self. Let go that, you know, sitting on the edge of the chair, oh, what's the next, what's the right word? Oh, yeah. And, and and let the creative preconscious part of yourself, the, the you know, part of yourself that, that scripts your dreams, that we say, well, that idea just fell into my head. It's just it's the things that, that powerful kind of thinking that happens to you when you're not thinking in quotation marks. I think that if uh, for people who want to try to write anything, whether it's a novel, a short story, poetry, even some kinds of nonfiction, um, get out of the way. Get your conscious self out of the way so that creative process can, can happen. And I think that's what's kept me coming back to fiction now for, through 11 books, is, is the, the pleasure of being in that uh, space where you, your conscious mind gets out of the way to, book just happens, it originates in a very strange, creative place, and um, you know, when you want to go back to that place, I, I just say one final thing, I think writers uh, through time have wanted so much to, to get the conscious mind out of the way, they, they sometimes do uh, uh, unwise things to obliterate their, their consciousness using drugs and alcohol or other ways of, of just kind of you, Getting that, getting your conscious thinking brain uh, uh, out of the interfering role. Those are dangerous. Fortunately for me, um, it just maybe I, it's because I've always kept another job. I just don't have time to anguish. I don't have time for writer's block. <laughs> <laughs> so, what has been the response among the CIA and the people that you uh, cover in your uh, work as a journalist? What has their response been over the years to your novels? So I, I'm happy to say that these novels have been seen as, as realistic by people who are in the intelligence business. Uh, an experience I've had, uh, you know, a dozen or more times is to be traveling overseas and have somebody walk up, introduce themselves, typically not by name. It's just, uh, I can't tell you who I am, but I just wanted to say one guy in particular I'm thinking about uh, in the uh, in the Near East, uh, now I can imagine where I work. Uh, I always wondered how to give my parents an idea of what I do at work, and so I gave them a copy of your, of your novel, Agents of Innocence. Ah, I gotta go now. And I've had that from a lot of different people. Um, I'm told that that first novel, which is so realistic, was actually handed out to trainees at the farm, which is where the case officers do their training, as an example of what what the agency actually does. So 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, to get it right in that way. Um, you know, I have to be honest, in, the, in my novels, I've sketched an arc of the CIA's um, difficulties uh, year by year. Um, I, I think it gets more difficult uh, to be an effective intelligence agency. Uh, the CIA's got so many people looking over its shoulder. I think they really were shaken by the illegal, you know, the just just terrible things that they did during the war on terrorism. The war on, after 9-11, the CIA became um, basically a, a covert action instrument for killing our adversaries abroad and not an intelligence agency. It got, it got away from the mission of spying and acting in secret and I think that was really difficult for 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 the CIA. I think it'd be a, it'd be a good thing if they went back to back to the basics of what they do. Uh, I'd love to see a CIA that was smaller in truth than the one we've got, smaller, better able to do the things that matter in secret. But in any event, uh, I, I think my novels uh, are are viewed by people who have been in the in the business, if if they're still if they're currently in the business, they can't talk to me about it, so I wouldn't know. But the people who retired off will say to me that um, these novels got it right. And do you have a sense from what you were just saying if the CIA, um, you know, will will go back to the the role that you just mentioned? So I think there's a there's a yearning among case officers to return to the more traditional role. The problem uh, for the CIA is that it works at the pleasure of whoever is president at the moment. And presidents often have assigned to the CIA jobs that they didn't want to do publicly, but felt needed to be done. Some of the worst mistakes that the CIA has, has gotten into were the result of presidential directives. Sometimes the CIA will have presidents that just don't like the CIA. I think that's probably the case now. Donald Trump seems to view the CIA as an instrument of some deep state. He doesn't like the FBI, doesn't like the CIA. So, you know, they, they, uh, they don't have a lot of, of political support. And indeed, there's, I have concern that there's growing attempts to, to manipulate uh, their product uh, Politically, to, to or, or at least be selective in what's disseminated to, to, for political reasons. That is poisonous. The idea that the people who are supposed to be our truth tellers, who are going to go out and find out what's really going on, and then and then and then say it uh, straight up. And CIA, to its credit, through the Vietnam War, said year after year, "This isn't working. This isn't going to work." CIA, to its credit, year after year in Afghanistan, said. This isn't working. This is not going to be successful policy. You know, the analysts told it the way they saw it. Uh, they got a lot of grief for it. The generals and presidents and all those people ignored them over and over again. But, uh, you know, I, I, I worry that that um, integrity of analysis and collection of information um, is at risk when you have an, uh, an administration that treats the intelligence agencies in such a political way. Uh, it's dangerous. Do you have a sense from your discussions with uh, the intelligence communities and CIA um, if there's a ranking from like one to what, let's say one to three? What what are the the countries or areas that are of the most concern? Would it be China and North Korea, and then 
would it be Iran as number three or 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 how does Russia fit in there? Yes, I think I think you know you'd have a, a top five uh, playlist, um, and the, you 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 mentioned it. C- certainly today, China uh, is seen as the most uh, potentially dangerous adversary of the future. Uh, China is a very hard country to collect information about reliably. Uh, it's a key target. It's um, you know, we have all sorts of different ways, uh, technical collection, penetration of their networks of one kind or another. Um, I'm sure that's that's a, a top priority. North Korea, just because we've had a danger of of some kind of military exchange, uh, top priority, incredibly difficult target. Uh, clearly, there's just so much we don't know about, about North Korea, I must say at a time when the news media were just full of stories about how Kim Jong-un was dead, it had a heart attack. You may remember this a few weeks ago. Right. Uh, my intelligence sources consistently from the first surfacing of this said, we don't think this is true. And they were, and they were right. So at least they know that much. Um, I think Russia is an increasingly a, a concern. Russia's ability to get in the middle of our elections to, um, conduct subtle, complicated uh, deception and, and so-called active measures operations um, made it a, a key target. Iran, uh, again, we have a, a danger of real shooting conflict uh, with with Iran. Um, and so a lot of work goes in, into that. Um, Iran's a good case example of, of just general fact. The CIA is the leader of a global alliance of intelligence agencies that have common purposes and that to the extent intelligence agencies can uh, share information. So obviously Israel um, sees Iran as its most important uh, threat. Uh, there's a lot of U.S.-Israeli, um, I don't want to say sh- sharing, but thinking together about that target. And then obviously the, the fifth uh, priority, but it's one that's misshapen everything else um, is is uh, terrorism right since 9-11 the cia's resources both in collection and covert action trying to take out terrorist adversaries um, really um, altered the balance of, of the agency's priorities and so the, the, I think they, they'd love to get back to the more traditional target set. I think there's some people who think that the Iran threat is probably overstated. We need to be careful about not putting too much resources militarily or in any other way toward that, toward that target. The one, I think the one thing I hear people talk about over and over again is China. That China is what matters. We've never had an adversary remotely like China in terms of its sophistication, its power. I mean, the Soviet Union during the Cold War was, you know, who was ever going to want to live in, in <laughs> continent Russia? I mean, it was like, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but China's different. China, China is a prosperous, confident, technologically subtle c- country. We've never, we've never faced anything like this. So I, I think that's, um, has so much mind share at the CIA and among every thoughtful government official and policy analyst. Um, and I, I think we've had some terrible reversals. My last novel was called The Quantum Spy. And it was about the competition between uh, Chinese and American intelligence to get the secrets needed to build a quantum computer. 
Yeah, it was basically drawn from life. But I'll tell you, in my reporting to prepare for that novel, I, I became aware of just shattering compromises of American spy networks in China that had been taken down by very clever, very aggressive Chinese uh, counterintelligence. So they're they're good at this. They're they're subtle. They play a very long game. Um, and I, I, one reason I wanted to write about the Chinese intelligence services, so few people have. We feel like we know everything about Russian intelligence. We've read all the Le Carre novels. We know just what Carlo looks like. We, like, frankly, you know, know our way around Moscow Center. Who knows anything about Chinese intelligence? How the Ministry of, of Public Security operates, how the PLA, spy services, feud with the civilian it's just it's virgin territory so i i wrote about that as i say in my last novel i may come back to it on my next right that's fascinating so so what books have you read recently fiction or nonfiction, that you would recommend well i so i'm reading the third of hillary mantel's trilogy about thomas cromwell um, I, I, I love the first two, and I think Cromwell is a is a character who was just so interesting, complicated, uh, amoral in, in many ways. You know, he is Machiavelli come to life on the page, uh, and I'm I'm enjoying that. I just am reading now to write about tomorrow uh, my column, a extraordinarily good book called The Kill Chain by a man named Christian Burroughs, who was Senator McCain's top aide and, and is one of the people who understands best how much we waste our defense budget on weapons that we don't need and avoid spending money on the weapons that we do need that are just different and we do not need more aircraft carriers thank you very much um, so those are those are two books in terms of, of fiction my, my tastes in fiction tend to be kind of old-fashioned i i I read every novel of, of Trollops. I go back and reread Trollop. I'm a obsessive Graham, Graham Greene fan. I, my dream would be to write as, um, as restrained and subtle a way as he does about intelligence matters. Um, so my, I'm kind of old-fashioned. One of my COVID-19 questions, um, maybe some of your listeners have a similar was, is this the time to read Proust? <laughs> Proust is one of the few novels I just, I never really could summon the, this one. I read all uh, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, but, but Proust is all. So when COVID-19 um, lockdown started, I, I got down my unread volumes of Proust, and I, and I made an effort, but I have to be honest, I gave up. <laughs> Great. Well, again, we've, right. been, again, we've been speaking with David Ignatius, author of the just-published novel, The Palavin. So go buy a copy of the novel now. And David, thanks for doing this interview. Really a pleasure. Thanks. Great. Wonderful. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. 
everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real Traveler Reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.